You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Carl Bergstrom, who is a professor of biology at the University of Washington, and also the author of this wonderful book called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. So Carl, in the book, you quote professor at the University of Oxford, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was welcoming the new students, and he said that the one thing that I want you to get out of your time here at Oxford is, and I don't think he used the word bullshit detection, but he did say that the goal was to teach them how to discern truth from fiction or nonsense from... Yeah, when a man is speaking rot, was his expression. <laughs> speaking rot. And I feel like that should be still the purpose of education or higher education. For my MBA students, we orient them when they first arrive with a couple tools. We teach them a bit about persuasion and critical thinking, and then we dive into a course called Data and Decisions, which is really about a lot of the things that you talk about in this book. And I was super pleased to see that you use a lot of the same examples that I use, including the uh, MRI of the, the dead fish, <laughs> you know, and, and some of the others that have been, uh, that are out there. But I guess I want to know, do you think that we do a good enough job? I mean, first of all, should we be doing this, teaching people to identify rot at all levels of education? And are we doing a good enough job? And the other question I suppose is, is this even more necessary than it has been in the past? We'll have to talk about the supply and demand for bullshit and whether or not we were seeing higher levels of bullshit. Like when we talk about danger in the Middle Ages, you had to walk around with your head on a swivel because somebody might jump out of the bushes and kill you. Right. Now you don't have to worry about it. But did you have to kind of worry more about bullshit back in the day or is like now the golden age of bullshit? All good questions. I mean, boy, I could just talk for an hour based on what you just asked, but it's did. Let's do it piece by piece and you can tell me where to start. Yeah. So let's start with, is bullshit on the rise, right? Or is this, I, I, look, I'm an historian. And so whenever somebody says, oh, things were better in the old days and now is the worst of all times, I'm always very skeptical as bullshit to sort of, you know, changed its nature. And maybe we, we backtrack and define bullshit because you can't really talk about bullshit without talking about Harry Frankfurt, who was the first to try and define it as opposed to sophistry right, right. or some other type of deception. So we were, of course, heavily influenced by Harry Frankfurt, who wrote that lovely essay later turned into a short book on bullshit, where we, you know, there's this interesting debate in the sort of growing field of bullshit studies, philosophy or of bullshit, all that sort of thing about whether bullshit is in the mind of the speaker or the mind of the recipient. Frankfurt is very much on the speaker side of things. For us, we hew fairly closely to Frankfurt and we thought about this. Our definition of bullshit is something like language, facts, figures, data, graphics, presentations that are given with an aim to impress or overwhelm or persuade an audience and more or less uh, disregard for the information that's being conveyed, whether the person understands anything, whether it's factually correct, anything else. Like that's very much our sense of what bullshit is. I'm just trying to impress you. I'm trying to overwhelm you maybe so you don't bother to argue back. It could be sort of a power move, if you will, where I'm just like, oh, well, here, you know, you think that your position is this, but you can't argue with me because here I'm going to bring all the numbers and all the fancy stats. And I don't actually care whether you understand anything that I'm saying. I don't really care whether or not what I'm saying is right or wrong. I just want to win the argument. I want to make you think I know what I'm doing. 
that kind of thing. So that's what we mean by bullshit. Of course, the book is titled Calling Bullshit. And we, so we go a bit broader than just that kind of bullshit. I mean, one could call bullshit on not only on bullshit, but one can call bullshit on injustice. One can call bullshit on lies or treachery or anything else. But so we do, you know, take on a broader scope of misinformation and other problems than simply that would be categorized as bullshit itself. Well, yeah, I was going to wait till the end, but we can jump right in. You call it calling bullshit. So first of all, I want to know how the heck you got that into the course catalog, because I don't know that I can get that you know, into my <laughs> course catalog. But by calling it calling bullshit, I think part of what you're saying is that we have a responsibility as participants in the community of knowledge production, or just, you know, as participants in the democratic process to call bullshit. And this is a bit different from, it goes a little further than the claim that in order for a democracy to function people have to monitor their beliefs and try to make sure that they don't fall prey to bullshit. This is going one step further. Not only are you supposed to police your own beliefs and, and not let yourself fall prey to this, but you're also supposed to actively go out and point it out when you see it. And I think this is a little bit, I think a lot of people are a little reluctant to do this. Even people who are very rigorous in the first task might be a little wary of going out and making enemies and rocking the boat because it especially in organizations where you sit at meetings and you're just bombarded with a tsunami of bullshit. If you stand up and say, hey, this is bullshit, you're putting yourself at risk, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. So first of all, uh, this comment, I think we are definitely taking the stance that there is a need for people to speak out against all kinds of bullshit and misinformation and everything else. And some of that has been exacerbated by the social media world that we live in right now, where the standard filters of information quality have been removed and instead of getting the news that have been vetted through an expert reporter and television producer, it's coming from Uncle Bob with his really weird ideas about 9-11 or whatever it is. And we need more than ever for people to stand up and say, no, this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. So that's one side of it. Then the other side of it, you know, Jevin West, my co-author, and I spend a lot of time talking to, to people in the corporate world about all of this. And I think one thing that we can do that's really fruitful is create a culture in which Calling bullshit is not an insult. It's not an attack. It's a constructive thing that one does. Jeff and I have been working together for nearly 20 years. And this is one of the most important things that we do for one another. When we're either collaborating on a project or sharing something that we're doing on the side, I'll take something to Jeff and say, here, I think I've got this result. It's really cool. And he'll start asking questions and say, what's your training set? And what's this, what's that? And then he'll eventually say, you know what? I think it's bullshit. I think that you've just picked up an artifact in the way that the data have been recording on the server. And that's like a huge gift to me because it keeps me from making an ass of myself in the published literature, right? And so the same thing happens in corporate settings. Obviously, there's been a lot of work on this sort of thing. And how do you create a less hierarchical culture, whether it's in the operating room, in the cockpit of an airplane, et cetera. You want people to be able to ask questions. You want people to be able to say, hey, great job analyzing that measure, but it doesn't tell us anything about what we really want to know. We really want to come after, we really want to be assessing this and we want to come at it this way. So I think part of the book and we, you know, the last bit of the book is actually about sort of the civics around calling bullshit is to recognize that this can be a constructive endeavor. It's not just me scoring points on the internet at one in the morning by taking down some guy with more followers than me. It's something that we do for each other to help us live in a world that is increasingly complex to navigate and increasingly data-driven and so forth. Look, you're not in a business school, you're in a biology department, but I think what I was going to say about business schools probably applies to any academic discipline. We spend a lot of time teaching people persuasion. And I mean this in the 
classic Aristotelian way. How do you, you know, make your point and how do you convince people and so forth? But we spend less time teaching people how to be persuaded, right? Like how to, yes. you know, guard yes. yourself against, you know, persuasion. I think in the sciences, we also teach people like, here's how you get published. And the fact that p-hacking is a relatively, you know, recent discovery, right? That this has come to the attention of people fairly recently. Well, I think we've been doing it all along inadvertently, but the yeah. concern about it is a recent discovery, right? It's not a new trick. It's an old trick and it's mostly inadvertent. Yeah, yeah. But this awareness and the replication crisis and so forth, does it suggest that we spend too much time on, if you go back to the Greeks, right, there's philosophy and there's sophistry. And I guess I'd want to know, yes. like, is this just a replay of that same debate? And is bullshit the same as sophistry? And I think even the Greeks would say, hey, look, even when you're trying to pursue truth, you still have to understand persuasion. And you talk about the psychology of debunking. So if you don't understand how to get that key in the lock to basically make people realize that they're bullshitting, then you're just going to be doing the Twitter thing where you're just going to be throwing, throwing fruit at the wall, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And this kind of gets back to your question about whether there's, are we in unusual time in terms of the volumes of bullshit and so forth? And we sort of allude to this in the book. We say, look, every generation, and in fact, quote the Greeks, complains that yeah, in their lifetime, discourse has gone all to hell. And so we say, you know, much as you and your historians, Ben, have, we say, you know, we don't really believe this, but it's our turn and we're not going to pass on our turn to complain about it. So we take our turn to complain about it. And, but at the same time, I think what is fundamentally different about the, there's kind of a couple of things that are fundamentally different about the world that we live in. And these are sort of themes. One theme is that that's sort of very prominent in the book and the other, that's kind of a subtext. So much of the bullshit is data driven today because the world is so intensely quantified both through the you know, prevalence of all kinds of sensing in the world that we live in, ambient sensors and everything else being recorded and monitored, but also because of the sort of intensely online nature of our lives that generates a tremendous amount of data about what we're interested in, what we want to buy, where we want to go, who we want to date. All of this stuff is being accumulated in data form. And so as we live in this an increasingly quantified world where instead of having to run these massive observational studies or surveys or something like that, to figure out what people's mobility is during a pandemic, we can just go to some company that's tracking cell phone movements and say, oh, people are driving 40% fewer miles than they were. Whatever it is, all of this is being quantified. So we're living in this world where arguments are made using data. And what the book is really about is that I think a lot of us have a good sense of how to spot, and you teach it, how to spot bullshit that comes dressed up in fancy words and in rhetoric and all of that. We've got a lot less training and a lot less experience calling bullshit that comes wrapped up in the trappings of data. And this gets back to your other question. I'm trying to link all this together, then we can move on to additional things. But this gets back to your other question about whether we're doing a good job of teaching this in the schools and, and so forth. And I think we do, you know, quite a good job in higher education of teaching people how to bang ideas up against one another in the humanities and, and in some areas of the social sciences. So my philosophy students that take the course are phenomenal at this sort of thing. I think we're really dropping the ball in STEM education, and we're really focusing on teaching people mechanics rather than critical thinking. So our students can run gels and they can invert matrices and they can code up a random forest algorithm or whatever it is, but they're much less good at being handed the sort of a weak analysis or something like that and saying, I don't buy these conclusions because here's some problems with the data that went into this and here's an alternative approach that you could use. And I think we're just not teaching STEM education as a critical thinking discipline. And so that's the other 
major component of what we're trying to lay out here in the book. And I think part of why the book has become enthusiastically adopted at, at schools around the country is because it actually presents data reasoning as a critical thinking discipline. So, I mean, I think there's two things going on here. One is the industrial organization of knowledge production and how that's changed, not just in the scientific community, but in the general public through social media and so forth. But then there's kind of the content of the information, which is you talk about the old school bullshit, which is primarily words and, and, and new school bullshit, which is, is numbers. Maybe let's start with the kind of industrial organization of knowledge production. And you talk about Brandolini's principle. Now I tell you, every time I read a book, I make note of all the cool new things that I didn't know about before. And I'd never heard of Brandolini's principle, but it sort of builds on, you know, Swift's idea, right? That you have to invest more resources. Sure does. Yeah. It's an offhand remark, basically an offhand remark that an Italian software developer made at a conference. And he said that Alberto Brandolini says that, says it takes an order of magnitude more work to clean up bullshit than to create it. And an order of magnitude is probably a low ball estimate for sure. But there's a bunch of these rules that are sort of about the stoichiometry of bullshit, if you will. You know, Finale's principle says an idiot could create more bullshit than you could hope to debunk. And then you, this goes back to Jonathan Swift and all the other beautiful expositions of this. Swift says uh, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after 300 years ago. And so, you know, we all have this sense that like bullshit takes wings and it's really hard to clean up. And this is indeed some of our concern is that in a social media world, especially people can put misinformation out and it becomes extraordinarily hard to refute that. And the you know, last two years, I'm an epidemiologist, an infectious disease epidemiologist, and in fact, an infectious disease epidemiologist of emerging respiratory diseases by training. And so this has been very painful lesson over the last two years. I'm very actively involved in Twitter and trying to deal with misinformation, talk, spending a lot of time talking to reporters and this sort of thing. And that's been a complete lesson of the pandemic is that you get a relatively small number of crackpots putting anti-vax disinformation or COVID denial or whatever else it is out there. And all of a sudden you got a nearly a third of the population that won't get vaccinated against a deadly disease during a pandemic. And this is these principles in action. So when it comes to the production of information, I mean, you talk about tribal epistemology and how perhaps elimination of central forms of authority allow this to proliferate. And then you also talk about kind of the, the fire hose of, of misinformation. And, and I was talking to Damon Santola, who's a sociologist, and he talks about this a lot and how repressive regimes, they used to think that the way to control the narrative was to suppress the truth. And then they realized you can just overwhelm it. And if you just exactly. fire hose everything, then people just lose the ability to distinguish kind of truth from falsity. Yeah. Such an important insight in terms of the evolution of modern propaganda, right? Is this falsehood fire hose strategy? Russia's used this very successfully in the Ukraine. And the idea is to just, to borrow Steve Bannon's term, flood the zone with shit. And so if you put out so instead of, yeah, trying to tell, instead of trying to convince people that some false thing is true, you just put out a ton of mutually contradictory messages until everyone throws up their hands and says, ah, we don't know. And that's not the sort of society that Jevin and I want to live in. And we hope that despite these various rules of stoichiometry that seem to favor bullshit, we hope that with critical thinking and engaged citizenry and, and honestly, some continued evolution of the way that we handled current communication channels like social media, that we can get ourselves back on track. I don't know if we want to even go down that route, but social media are, are not the exclusive cause of the current bullshit epidemic, but they certainly are heavy contributors. And so far, our uh, approach has been to allow 
these companies to operate in the basically completely in the darkness with no regulation. And no, we may need to think about that at some point. Of course, the, the boundary line between social media and media has blurred. So of course, that's also really important. Even when we think about traditional media, it's hard to, you have to keep your bullshit detector active, even when you're reading things from the New York Times and, and so forth, because they're pursuing clicks as, as aggressively as, as anybody else. So that kind of means that. That's right. The business model for how you monetize content has changed radically online. And you used to form these long, we talk about this in the book, you used to form these long-term relationships with information providers like the New York Times. You'd subscribe articles in the New York, and then they would, they'd get revenue based on your subscription money, but also the ad-based revenue based on their subscription base. And then the articles in the Times weren't in head-to-head -head competition with each other. But now I, you know, even, you know, I, I pick up my iPhone and hit the news app in the morning and I have a couple of intelligent analyses for various places, but you know, as we talk about, somebody got a lip job and then there's nine cats that look like Disney princesses all there head to head. And as good of a person as I try to be, you got to see those cats. This kind of is a race to the bottom, if you will. And, and we definitely see that. I mean, I write about this a lot on Twitter that we just see these more really irresponsible headlines from even the most reputable outlets. New York Times is a classic example that I'm always picking on. Mm -hmm. You talk about science and I think science is self-correcting, right? When it performs properly. And Keynes famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. If it's self-correcting, it, it's self-correcting kind of in the long run, but in the short run, you can have scientific opinions, which are yet to be debunked, will be debunked. Do you think that we have adequate checks in place to police science as quickly as we could? Do you think that the political economy of scientific knowledge production, and I guess you talk about sullied motives and so forth. Science includes lots of different things. We have folks trying to get grants from the NSF, but then we also have folks that are trying to get funding from, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And then we've got folks that are pursuing other ways of getting finance for their research and so forth. Is there this monolithic thing called science or is science, does it necessarily bleed into commerce and everything else? I think there's a monolithic thing called science the same way there's a monolithic thing called society. And I'm so glad you asked this because this is actually what I was working on prior to the pandemic and what I planned, planned, had been planned to be working on the last few years, sort of the, you know, the political economy and knowledge production, essentially is what I've been so very interested in and really bringing back and extending ideas that were developed during the initial burst of what was called the new economics of science in the 1990s. And so the way I think about this is that in science, we've got this set of norms, you know, science, we've got this set of norms and institutions that are more or less haphazardly evolved culturally out of the way that people did things in parts of Europe in the, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And these are brick and mortar institutions like the NIH, but they're also norms like what constitutes a scientific paper, who gets credit, the priority rule for credit, what does authorship mean, things like this. These norms and institutions create incentives and rather than scientists being these idealized agents that are just purely seeking the truth, as we see in a lot of the uh, more normatively bent work in the philosophy of science, we borrow this phrase that you alluded to from Philip Kitcher, who draws this distinction between epistemically pure agents and epistemically solid ones. And he says, we can imagine these hypothetical epistemically pure agents that just wanted to understand how the world works, but in the real world, we're all epistemically solid because we're all driven by the incentives that are created for us by these norms and institutions that are associated with science. So these norms and institutions create incentives. We respond to those incentives in the way that we choose strategies for what we research, how we present our findings, where we publish, what we publish, et cetera. And 
those strategies then determine what we think that we know about the world and what we don't know about the world, what we know that isn't even true and, and so on. And so there's very much this direct link between these haphazardly evolved norms and institutions of science and the knowledge that we have about the world. And so, I mean, this is the whole kind of picture that I'm very interested in. This entire flow is evolving as the kinds of questions that we ask become very different. And I think that's one of the things you, you talked about the replication crisis earlier. And, and one of the things we're confronting is that we're now asking questions about very different kinds of data, enormous data, the enormous data sets with hundreds of variables that we can mine through in online systems and so forth. And we're a lot of what we're doing when we do that is we're still using statistics that were developed a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, first of all, to be able to be done on paper and second of all, to analyze systems with very small numbers of variables, you get this mismatch there. And so people are able to then pull out statistically significant results. That's feeding into a publication culture where, and this is coming back to the norms and institutions, where we're rewarded to be able to generate things that are surprising. People don't want to read about stuff that doesn't work and no one wants to publish no results. People don't want to read about things that aren't surprising. People want to read about surprising positive results. And of course, once you have that ability to mine data for surprising positive results, you can pull all kinds of noise out and uh, you end up with a literature that is increasingly dominated by noise rather than signal. And these are the sorts of questions that I'm really interested in thinking about. And I think this is where, as we think about what does science need to do in order to filter out BS and so forth. It's not so much that we're worried about frauds or, or this sort of thing. It's that we need to continue to adapt to the kinds of questions that we're asking and the kinds of data that we use to ask them with. Yes. I think one view could be, all right, you've got this thing that's pure out there called science and everything's great. And then by the time it makes it through this media filter, it gets distorted by the desire to pursue clicks and so forth. That's clearly a false dichotomy, not only because there are people that sort of sit in the middle, doctors who are, you know, essentially reading propaganda from pharmaceutical companies or whatever, but also like, how would you even know if you see a result, how do you know what's in the file drawer? How do you know what's not being published? How do you know the, the research that isn't taking place? Like it's almost impossible for you to dig completely down to figure out how much faith you should put in these uh, different findings, right? That's very tricky to figure all that out. And yeah, I mean, you're alluding to this whole file drawer issue, which is tremendously important. All the work that because of these norms and institutions, no one wants to publish negative results. The negative results end up in a file drawer, the positive results end up in the journals, and you don't actually know what the balance of these are. There's this amazing paper that it's my favorite paper of the 21st century, I think, that Eric Turner wrote about antidepressants. And you know, antidepressants do work. They're, they can be life-saving for the right people in the right contexts. But what Eric did that was absolutely fascinating was he had an opportunity to look in the file drawer because he was at the FDA. And so he looked at what's published in the literature and he shows this, you know, you sort of think of it as the area above the iceberg. He shows all of these studies that are published showing that these different antidepressants work. And he says, if you were just a researcher doing a literature review, this is what you find. 45 studies showing they work and five showing they don't. And you'd think, wow, this is really impressive body of evidence. And then Eric went to the trial registrations with the FDA and he showed that actually there was the, the whole part of the iceberg that was down below the waterline. There were even more studies that had been run that didn't work, that had just not been published. And worse yet, many of the studies that were run and didn't work had been outcome switched. So they may have been looking at one particular outcome in the pre-rate, in the registration for the trial saying, you know, we're trying to improve score on some quality of life survey at four years. 
and out, and then they, they switched the outcomes and they said, well, you know, that doesn't work, but it does rec- reduce suicidality at, at six months or something like that. And so many of the papers that appeared positive actually had been failed trials that had been outcome switched to move to the positive side. This was a really powerful illustration of just how deep the file drum effect can reach. This is a huge problem. We're trying to figure out what to deal with this. Obviously within science, there are a bunch of movements to try to find ways to alleviate that. The whole notion of uh, registered reports is an example. I don't think it's a panacea, but the idea is that you submit a paper before you've actually done the research. You submit the experimental design, the journal reviews the experimental design, and it accepts the result in principle, irrespective of what the outcome is. And the idea there is it both reduces the incentives for people to p-hack their work and then also is going to increase the sort of representation of these negative results in the published literature. So people are exploring a whole bunch of different ways to address these kinds of problems. And I do think it's one of the things that sort of our generation of scientists and, and data scientists and so forth are going to be instrumental in doing is reforming some of these aspects of how the whole scientific publication process works. Now you reference Bruno Latour and you talk about the black boxes and I love this idea because so much of seeking authority is effectively laying claim to some black box that can't possibly be explained. And you say, okay, you know, here's all this stuff. And then we got my black box and, oh, by the way, since I have these credentials or this authority, right, or I establish it through a bunch of mumbo jumbo (laughs) bullshit, right? That, That like, you must know what you're talking about. And so therefore, and I think you make two claims. One is that even without examining the contents of the black box, you can probably evaluate the credibility and the, the merits of the argument. But then you also offer some guidance as to, you know, how to crack open the black box and dig in and, and see what happens. But I thought the first point was really important because what it says is that if you're going to have a democracy filled with people who are evaluating claims and identifying and calling out bullshit, people can't be epidemiologists. People can't be physicists, people can't be data scientists, but you're arguing they don't need to in many cases. That's what we're arguing in the, in the book. And I want to come back around to this because I have some very thoughtful colleagues that are pushing back at me about this. And I want to raise their arguments as well, but that's absolutely our argument in the book. So the, the book sort of started with a course, as you mentioned, that we teach at the University of Washington. It's called Calling Bullshit. We teach it to 160 undergrads every year. They come from across campus, 40 different majors, and they're in the arts and they're in architecture and as well as in science and engineering and, and statistics, those students don't have the technical background, just like most of us don't to dig into a statistical analysis. And they're used to being, we're all used to being pushed around by people that claim to have a rigorous statistical analysis. Yeah. I have the same thing, you know, people come and, you know, people read something and they'll be talking about, oh, I use this differences and differences. Wow. And I think, oh shit, I could go read, refresh my memory on how that works. Or I could just say, I could just accept it. And it's, we're all too busy. And so what we wanted to point out is our experience, you know, looking at a lot of this and having reviewed hundreds of papers and all this other stuff is that the bullshit is almost never in the black box where the black box for us is the sort of the technical statistical form of analysis or the machine learning algorithm or whatever it is that someone's using. Every now and then there are cases where the whole thing turns out to be an artifact, but almost never in there. The bullshit is almost always in one of two places. It's either in the choice of the data to put into the black box. Maybe there's a big sampling bias problem, a selection bias problem with the data that you're analyzing, or it's in the conclusions you draw. You found, you know, correlational data from an observational study, and then you make claims about causation. So what we're trying to do is show these students that you don't need to have any idea what the hell these people are talking about with their technical machinations. 
you don't even have to look in there. You can just look at what do they put in, what comes out and so on. So, you know, if we have an example in the book where these guys claim to have written a, a criminality detector that could look at a picture of your face, decide whether or not you're a criminal. And we show you, you can take that apart without ever looking at the machine learning they were using or the computer vision or anything else. You just look and you notice that, wow, they uh, trained the, the training set was two different sets of pictures, criminals that were not smiling in government IDs and non-criminals that were smiling on LinkedIn photos. And so then when you look at the output, in fact, what they've invented is a smile detector, not a criminality detector. And you can do that without knowing anything about uh, machine learning or computer vision or anything else, just by thinking about the data that went in. And so that's one of the underlying premises of the book is that if you don't let yourself be frightened by the fact that this person has a mathematical or machine learning statistical black box that you don't know how to take apart, then you don't have to be deferential to the authority of that. And instead you could say, well, how did you get your sample? What was your training set? You're claiming that you've got causation. I think this was an observational experiment and I see a correlation here. How did you do the causal inference? And that's kind of like what we're telling people that they have the power to do. And that's really what the book is about. It's empowering people to push back against the numbers that are being used to shove us around. So I actually use that same example in my data science class. And when I teach this data science class to MBAs and, and others, we don't discuss the mechanics of backprop. I don't understand it. <laughs> right. You absolutely can't. But to some extent, like if you don't know a bit about how these models are trained, if you don't have some fluency in training and scoring and you know, how does it work and, and so forth, then it's hard to pick it apart. And then also it helps to have some little bit of domain expertise. And so the question is, to what extent, I think we can agree, you don't need to understand the super, the mechanics of what's going on in the box. But when you're looking at the stuff that goes in and comes out of the, of the box, part of it is just, you know, pure logic. Correlation doesn't imply causation. But in order to put some teeth on that, you kind of have to understand a little bit about how inference happens and you can be educated in that. And then do you have to know, like, if you're dealing with, I use this other example from Christian Rudder's book on, on dataclism about dating and how if a man sends an email with the word beautiful in it, then that correlates with a lower response rate. And so they told their users, like, don't use that word. And of course, the problem was that the emails that contained the word were going to the women who received the highest volume of emails. They didn't control for that. In there, in that case, it's like, you need to know a little bit about dating and so forth in order to understand that this lurking variable volume is something that you ought to include in the model. When you're trying to identify lurking variables and other explanations, you need a little bit of domain expertise. So, so to what extent can you have like a general bullshit detection capability and to what extent do you need to know like a little bit about cars and a little bit about human behavior and a little bit about these other things in order to, you know, really do a good job? Oh, I think this is a really good point. As I wrote the book, I was hoping that we could get a really long way on bullshit detection ability and logic and so forth. I'm increasingly convinced that what you say is exactly right. You need that level of domain expertise as well. And I think the most constructive thing I could say about the book is that it points out that the domain expertise that you need is you need to know what it's like to try to get a date. You don't need to know what it's like to write these machine learning algorithms that Doe okay, Cupid was, but whichever he was his was using. And so a lot of the time we have some of that experience, but it's absolutely true. I mean, it's the same thing with epidemiology. It's if you don't understand exponential growth, you're going to have a really hard time sorting through claims about this. So there are these elements of domain expertise that are going to end up being absolutely necessary. And that's one of the places my thinking's kind of been evolving in the, in the 
couple of years since we wrote this book, it came out, we finished it right before the pandemic broke out, is this importance of thinking about not only, I mean, the book is really a, a book about what, about how you can engage in sort of something like a deep reading of a claim, right? How do you take this claim and analyze the claim for its own merits? And the book has, there are places where we allude to the, the notion of sort of lateral reading, where you try to evaluate the, the sources that are making this claim. But I think that would push that in, in the class. We now do push this much harder. So in the book, we say, you know, whenever you hear something, first of all, if it's second, it sounds too good or too bad to be true, it probably is. There's a good bullshit detection sort of you know, thing you can build up. And then second of all, ask yourself, who's telling me this? How do they know it? What are they trying to sell me? And so that's definitely a question of a sort of lateral assessment of the claim. There's this wonderful work that Sam Weinberg's done. It's been really influential in my thinking in the last year or two. He's in education at Stanford and he's done these experiments where he has presents people with a text that makes some kind of argument. It may be about vaccines or politics or anything else. And they're presented this in a naturalistic environment. So they get it on a screen in a web browser and they say, just do whatever you want. Tell me whether this is right or not. And he, and he has uh, Stanford undergrads do it and he has history professors do it and he has professional fact checkers do it. And the Stanford undergrads and the history professors just dive into the text and they deep read this thing and they try to, on the strength of their own knowledge and whatever background they bring to it, they try to figure out whether it's right. Within 30 seconds, the fact checkers, usually within five seconds, the fact checkers are off of that original document. They've got five other tabs open there, looking on Wikipedia to see who the hell wrote this, under whose roof did they write it, what's been said about it. And that's lateral reading. And we live in a world where lateral reading is possible now. And so I think that the part of the solution to what you're talking about, this need for domain knowledge, which we often don't have, is to balance the sorts of approaches that we're largely pushing in the book, which is thinking critically about data, which I think is going to be very important, but to balance that with understanding that we live in this world with just, it's a hypertextual wonderland. 50 years ago, the only thing you could have done was this deep reading and try to figure out whether it's right or not. I guess you could have gone up and gone to the library, looked at microfiche or something, but now at a few clicks and you find out like, oh, geez, this guy turns out to be working for something that was founded by the foundation for the promotion of the family or whatever it is. And then you realize you put those connections together and you know what to make of things. So if I was going to go back and redo this, I think I would, I would definitely want to push a, a more balanced view of using both of those approaches more heavily. And the, you know, the degree to which lateral reading made it into the book was almost more by happenstance. It's just reporters trio of questions. Who's telling me this? How do they know? What are they trying to sell me? I mean, that's just good common sense. And but in a way that's, that's very difficult. There are certain things you can do where you can go to scholar.google, you can go to New England Journal of Medicine. There's certain things that you can do to try to find out what's really going on. But often, more often than not, it's really quite difficult for an ordinary person. I mean, if you're reading the newspaper and you see hospital capacity is at 90%, oh, and you're like, okay, well, is that high? Is that low? What is it normally? Is it normally 90% or is it normally 70%? And if the newspaper doesn't tell you, it's actually quite difficult to find out. Or if someone says, we've got this many people dying with COVID, it's like, okay, well, did they die of COVID or with COVID? And if it's the journalist doesn't dig for you, you don't really have the capacity because the journalist is, has the ability to do the digging at a much lower cost than, than you do. And so... It has the domain knowledge, ideally. I mean, this is a place where journalists are so important. Like with COVID, I mean, people ask me, how do we figure out what's going on? And I always advise people to find a couple of journalists that they deeply trust who actually specialize in this. Not somebody that, you know, is on the politics desk, but is going to write something about this, but someone like Helen Branswell, that's been reporting on infectious disease for 20 years, knows everybody in the business 
And almost everybody I know who's a professional epidemiologist first heard about COVID from a tweet that Ellen Branswell sent on December 30th, 2019, which is remarkable. But you know, that's, these people know everybody, they have that background, they have the domain expertise, and then they have the ability to, and the knowledge to go in. And if somebody makes a claim, you know, oh, hey, uh, this new strain is causing a lot more long COVID or something like that, then they can go and they can, they know who to ask to say, well, does that make sense? Is that right? And get that context. And so like for that really higher level analysis of claims in a very messy, complicated world. And and, and there's a word we haven't used yet, actually, Greg, which is the word uncertainty. And this is a particularly bad situation because of the enormous amounts of epistemic uncertainty that we have around any of these kinds of questions. So, I mean, there's some things where it's pretty certain someone's just straight up bullshitting. We know exactly what's going on. Someone's straight up bullshitting you if people start throwing around numbers about crimes committed by DACA recipients or something. We know damn well that the rates at which they commit crimes are far lower than those of U.S. citizens. But with COVID, like a lot of the time, this is a new disease. We just don't have answers to any of these questions. And like how you navigate that additional uncertainty layers a whole, and I mean, that, that, that really requires this expertise and domain knowledge even more than just to sort through bullshit about things that are no knowns. But I think you take a very charitable view of people. Calling bullshit sounds like uh, you're pointing a finger at somebody and accusing them of mendacity. But I think you say that you should always start with the presumption that people are not ill-intended, but rather are potentially incompetent. It's just Hamlet's Razor. Yes, I love Hamlet's right? Razor. I mean, it says, never assume malice when incompetence is a sufficient explanation. And then Jevon and I go one further. Um, it's never, never assume incompetence when an understandable mistake is a sufficient explanation because Devin and I made more than our share of understandable mistakes. I hope they're understandable mistakes and there's just no reason to be an asshole. However, once evidence starts to accumulate, you have certain people that over and over again, make big mistakes, always in the same direction. Now you can start to reevaluate the evidence. I think in law, we have a principle, right, of negligence where you didn't intend to kill the guy, but you kind of waved the gun around, <laughs> you knew it was loaded. And, and so the guy died. And, and at that point, your intent is less relevant. It's really more, did you take proper care? And I guess it makes sense to hold people accountable for when they fail to do due diligence, when they fail to fact check, when they fail to think about how their claims will be interpreted and not like deny responsibility, right? It interacts with the uncertainty issue. I think if you're writing a story for the New York times and you talk to four prominent scientists and three of the four say something that turns out to be a minority opinion, maybe that's not, uh, as long as they're reasonable people, maybe that's not huge negligence. If you're say a podcaster on Spotify, who just got a hundred million dollars and you keep platforming, uh, anti-vaxxers, that probably is negligence. And let's talk about big data because this is new. And anytime something new comes along, there's going to be a period where people are, haven't quite figured out how to deal with it. And it's, there's going to be some growing pains, but this is happening so fast. And the sheer amount of data that we're getting is accelerating so rapidly. And even the note, like the data scientists, we've been manufacturing them at such, such a clip and feeding them these tools. And yet we've probably been doing so without proper training. It's like giving everybody like here get this new thing called a machine gun, like here, let's all, you know, without any sort of training on, okay, here's how I use it. I mean, not just in terms of the technical skills, but also the responsibility piece. So how can we at multiple levels make people 
better users and consumers of these tools? It's a deep question. There's a lot, there's a lot packed into that. I think that one of the, the really important things we need to be paying more attention to is the broad issue of ethical AI. And there's so little thought that you know, went into this in the first wave. It's got this tech growth mindset, move fast, break things, try this out, coupled with a lack of diversity in the people that are developing these tools and so forth, that leads to creation of a bunch of things that the implications haven't been thought through very carefully. There could be really problematic consequences. I'm always stunned by the, some of the things that people think are good ideas to build AIs to detect, whether it's criminality or sexual orientation or whatever it is. But these are fringe examples, more generally thinking about the ways in which uh, big data, AI, data aggregation influence society and can have unintended consequences is enormously important. And I think this era, as we're starting to see more and more examples of the way that machine learning algorithms, big data analyses, et cetera, are generating inequitable outcomes. It's becoming very clear that we need to have a whole essentially discipline or subdiscipline thinking about the ethical consequences of the things that we're doing with large scale cross-indexed information. So you know, at the University of Washington, I'm not in the information school, Jeffrey West is, but the information school has been hiring a number of people doing AI ethics, for example. And I think that's going to be needed across the board because these do offer, there are two things they do. They offer us the power to learn about people in ways that we never could before. And then they come with this sort of gee whiz factor that make them seem like they work when people say, oh, we came up with this algorithm to improve sentencing in the judicial system. And it's, and, and because it's a computer, it's not biased the way that people, well, bullshit, it's a computer. You've had to train it on something. What'd you train it on? You presumably trained it on data that are generated by our society which is biased as hell. So how did you do it? So I mean, these sorts of things are absolutely critical. Well, I think you said somewhere in the book that numbers provide the biggest ROI on your bullshit dollar. That's what I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. People are, I mean, numbers have this, and this is why we wrote the book to some extent. I mean, bullshitters are discovering this, right? If I start giving you a bunch of words, you're saying, oh, that's a bunch of fancy words. I throw numbers at you, a bunch of things happen. For one thing, it may not happen to you, but for a lot of people, they'd say, oh, well, that's kind of technical. That's arcane. I don't know this, this logistic regression he's talking about. I can't question that. And then the other thing is that numbers just have this feeling. We have these aphorisms that like the data don't lie. People sure as hell use the data to lie all the time and the data mislead us all the time. And so we have this sense that if I give you a bunch of words, that's just subjective. It's like someone's opinion. It's loosey goosey. But if I like, look great, like those are the numbers. Like I can't help you here. I'm just telling you the numbers. Then you're just like, oh yeah, he's just telling me the numbers. That's no bullshit there. I was like, of course there's bullshit there. It's like the choice of the numbers, how to present them, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just to try to help people understand that the numbers are the next frontier of bullshit. And do you think that's true at all levels? You've got the people who are consuming, you know, media who are taken in by graphics and so forth, but also you talk about mathiness in general at the academic level, where if you don't have... Presumably, the more math you put in a, in a paper, the more likely it is going to get published, right? Oh, Jesus. I, not in biology, but anyway, keep going. Yeah. So it seems to be the mathiness penetrates all levels, right, of discourse. There are certainly, in some areas of academia, we fetishize mathematical rigor for no good reason. You've read enough economics papers to know this. And there definitely are people that hide relatively weak 
analyses behind a lot of mathematical sophistication. It's not just something people being fooled by a shitty graph on Fox News. I mean, it, it's definitely something that we do in science. Science is not immune to any of this. Jevin and I wrote a paper a year ago that's called Misinformation in and About Science. And what it does is it goes through and it takes all of the sorts of examples of things, sources of misinformation and bullshit that we talk about in the book. And it says, it's nice to think that, oh, that's what happens to common people. And in like the, in the vulgar discourse of Twitter and Facebook, but actually like every one of these things has an analog in the whole ecosystem of scientific knowledge production. So, you know, for sure, that's all there. So judges, there's this thing called the Daubert principle, right? Where judges are able to evaluate whether something's science or, or pseudoscience. And the question is, wait, what kind of training could they possibly have in answering that question if they've studied law where they probably never encountered a single number in, except for a citation number? Dalbert is really hard. I used to do a bunch of work with the Grutter Institute for Law and Behavior that involved spending time with federal appeals court, state Supreme Court judges, helping them work through these kinds of issues, which was absolutely fascinating. And it was really useful for me to think about how difficult is it? And these people just impressed me so much in their ability to actually navigate to reasonable conclusions. But it is extraordinarily difficult to figure out what is admissible and not admissible as proper scientific evidence. And it certainly isn't made any easier by the very common nonsense portrayals of what the scientific method is. And we do everyone this horrible disservice in, in high school and often in college courses as well of teaching this kind of really naive uh, version of Popperian falsificationism or something like this that has more or less no relation to anything that anybody actually does in science. But a lot of people believe it. And, and even in Dober, this these sorts of things come in and, and there's a lot of talk about, is this falsifiable or not? So a place where I disagree a little bit with some of my uh, colleagues, it's famous opinion that Judge Jones wrote in the intelligent design case. People really praised him for saying that intelligent design wasn't science and so forth. But I actually think if you read the opinion, he's fallen prey to rather naive notions about what science is. People just like the decision. Well, so, I mean, is it possible that you could have a generalist that is an expert in evaluating arguments and calling bullshit? Devil's advocate in the Vatican, right? It'd be very difficult to get tenure just going around criticizing and debunking. There's no, we don't have referees and are not professional referees. That's to sort of a side gig. Would it make sense to have some kind of institutional fact checker, checks and balances, somebody whose job it is, and you could get tenure being a debunker or like a, a filter or a sieve? Fact checkers are extremely valuable, but yeah, you're, you're talking about, again, something a little more sophisticated. I mean, I think this is part of why people like Andrew Gelman are inordinately valuable in the world is because that role is underplayed. It's, it pisses people off and it takes a certain kind of personality to be good at it and willing to do it. I don't know. I don't have a good institutional solution to that. I'm not sure that having a, a sort of cadre of people that sit and just shoot things down is necessarily going to be the right way to go as opposed to helping people better understand what it is when, you know, for thinking about scientists, for example, helping scientists better understand what the hell it is that they're doing when they're doing science and get a better idea of how to think critically about it. This is, again, it's a pet peeve, but it's remarkable. Scientists learn as much philosophy of science as fish do hydrodynamics. I mean, it's a formal hydrodynamics, right? It's a, they know none. They do it. They got no idea what the hell they're doing. And I think they could do better. Fish don't probably need any hydrodynamics because they've got 600 million years of adaptive evolution. But I think we would 
all as practicing scientists do better to have some grounding in what the hell we're doing. Well, we do have like short sellers in the financial markets and, and they just, they're patrolling the markets looking for bubbles and, and they, their job is to poke them and they get rewarded for it. And they're domain neutral. They'll go from a AMC over to GameStop over to Neutral Life or whatever. And they're specialized in looking for situations where there's a belief bubble that they can potentially deflate. I like that idea. You think about scientific short sellers. Yeah, it's tricky because often intersect with these elements of being sort of, you know, toxic culture that when we have groups of people that start to behave that way, there's often part of contributing to driven by some of the more toxic aspects of academic culture. And so how to balance that, I don't have good answers. So I think you'd probably say that we all need to pitch in. I think so. You use this great metaphor. You're talking about littering on the information superhighway. (laughs) And we could have police officers that go around and look for litterers, or we could all, whenever you see a litterer, say, hey, you probably shouldn't be be littering. Um, And even more important, not litter ourselves. I think that's, this is Neil Postman's third law, right? At any given time, the source of bullshit that you need to be most concerned about is yourself. And we can all, if we, Javin's got this wonderful expression, if we write another book, it may be titled this, which is think more, share less. And in a social media world, that's really important because you don't have the 20, 25 years ago, your inability to think before or unwillingness to think before sharing didn't, had, had very bounded effects. But now I can type something stupid on the internet. A million people have seen it by night. If it happens to be stupid in the right way. But you specialize in infectious diseases and information works viruses in many ways for better, for worse. And you can become a vector of something good or something bad. And we presumably need to bolster our immune systems to protect us against something these, like that. Yeah. These false ideas. How can we do that? How can we strengthen the immune system of the public? Do we need to vaccinate people when they're five years old? How do we, and then do we need to give them boosters every couple of years? How do we do this? I do think we need, we do need to catch up to the realities of the environment that we live in. And we need to adapt the way that our education system works to the way that our culture is changing. And I think absolutely we need to teach some media literacy that involves thinking about social media. We need to, you know, be deliberate in teaching critical thinking. We need to teach concepts like lateral reading so that people know how to look into that. It's striking to me, you know, as an example of something that where we have a changing environment that we haven't caught up with my students, and this is a really broad and students nationwide have a difficult time distinguishing fact from opinion, a much more difficult time than people used to. Why is that? And it's not that they're stupid or anything else like that. It's that the things that supposedly pass for news shows these days are 90% opinion. And we used to have much cleaner, uh, you watch Fox and Friends or something. It's not, and it's the same on MSNBC. So I'm not just picking on the right. We need to recognize that like people used to know the difference between fact and opinion because they used to be labeled and now they're not labeled anymore. And it's pretty hard to even get very many samples of unbiased fact because fact is boring. I get up there and spit and rant and all that. It's a lot more interesting. Well, Carl, thank you so much. The book is called Calling Bullshit. Hopefully everyone will go read it, start going out and calling bullshit in kind ways, both yeah, kind ways for others and for themselves. <laughs> Appreciate you for chatting. Hopefully we'll chat again soon. That was great. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much and uh, have a great rest of your day. Take care. Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.